Today we're going to be sitting down. Uh, it's the third part that we started off. Uh, and like John and I sat down. Literally, this whole thing started. John Rulo and I sat down uh, right after summer camp ended, and in the conversation reflecting on summer camp, we ended up getting into some dialogue after we had recorded the post summer kind of looking back and, and summarizing how the summer went we're we're there in the recording studio and then we start to talk about social media and then i'm like oh wait 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 let's turn the mics back on and boom we ended up with an episode that we've had phenomenal feedback from followed that up with a conversation with spencer davis and rob conti who live in the snowbird world of student pastors students um so getting a little more insight and then today i wanted to bring harry mcsweeney and harry uh, is the guy at Snowbird that really has developed all of our social media presence and lives in that world. So this will be part three. Um, we're just, it's going to be the same format, pretty informal, just three dudes talking, mics turned on, sitting around talking, and I hope it'll be productive for you. Welcome to No Sanity Required. From the Ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a podcast about the Bible, culture, and stories from around the globe. I've got uh, I've got John Rulo back with me today. I've got Harry McSween. Harry is uh, he's a guy that if you're a, if you're a person that follows Snowbird on social media, including if you follow the NSR podcast, you know you're not just randomly listening to this one episode, but you're one of our listeners. Um, all of that is the world that Harry oversees, and, and so this a lot of it's his brainchild. And when we first had a, a desire to do a podcast, it was kind of me and Harry talking through what would that look like, and um, feel like it, it's been productive. The feedback's been good, but it, it made sense to me uh, to have Harry come on, um, and, and let's have a, a third part to this because of the feedback we've gotten. This will be the last for now. Um, but I wanted to have, I wanted to hear from Harry because of how much time he lives in the world of social media, and because ironically, he hates social media <laughs> personally. Both, yeah. both true things. <laughs> okay, good. I was making sure I wasn't speaking out of line there. And I'd sent uh, sent you guys uh, sent you guys an article um, that just came out in Desiring God. Uh, it was this week. Yeah, it was find wisdom to live in a digital age written by a guy named Patrick Miller, who I looked up. He's a pastor in Missouri, and that came out August 28th. So just uh, within the last week or two, that got posted. Um, so it, the article, I'd, I'd someone sent it to me. Timmy Burnett, who's a pastor in Asheville area, North Carolina, he listened to the last two episodes and then sent me this. And uh, I thought it was really insightful. And so I wanted to share a few quotes from it, but I sent it to John and Harry, and we're just going to kind of continue the conversation here. But start off maybe reading a few quotes from this article. The internet has fundamentally changed us. It justifies the pursuit of justice by unjust means, transfiguring meaningful public debates into performative platforms for self-expressive individuals. The shockwaves currently fracturing evangelicalism online originate in many cases from the medium within which those fractures are expressed. At the heart of digital authenticity is emotional expression. James, talking about this guy that wrote this book, some, some guy, last name James. James focuses on internet shaming and outrage. His key insight isn't that the social internet makes us angry. We all know Facebook was algorithmically engineered to foment outrage. Instead, James shows that the social internet habituates behavior it trains us to inhabit the world as wrathful people who emote first and think second, thereby re- reinforcing and providing a platform for self, quote unquote, self-expression. To resist, that's an interesting uh, thought. He's saying this is all designed j- just to, he says, foment outrage, to trigger outrage. Remember in Dan Crenshaw's book, which that guy's kind of become just another player in the system, but well, when he went in in 18, everybody was excited, and he wrote that book. What was it called? Do you remember? Fortitude. Fortitude. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I think it's Fortitude. And he talks about outrage culture. And he, like his first week on Capitol Hill, you know, he's walking down the street, 
and there's a group of people, he said, you know, like middle-aged people, and they've all got these shirts on that say, stay outraged. He's like, what do you, what do you guys, what are you supposed to stay outraged about? And nobody knew. Like, just, just stay outraged, man. Just got to be outraged. Yeah, but that's, you know, this idea that, that all, like, social media has created this outrage culture with its slow-burning commitment to listening, understanding, civility, careful speech, and enemy love. He says that's how we got to resist it, and he calls that an ancient biblical wisdom where the the modern, like what we're seeing the trend is, be mad, be outraged. Uh, the, the algorithm of um, when, he, when he talks about those algorithms of Facebook, or, and you can apply this to any social media, that it's alder, algorithmically engineered to foment outrage, and then the people just – just blow up in expression without thinking. So it's just reaction without thought. It seems like social media has, has, is making people unable to think critically. I think we, we talked about this, Harry. I'd like to talk about critical thinking and the impact that social media has had on it. And then, um, like the, the, the culture of mass hysteria, or there's a, there's a social, there's a word. There's a phrase in sociology now where when you get enough people reacting a certain way to something, um, then people don't even know why they're reacting. They're just reacting. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. social media is. I feel like that's what's happening. Yes. So people are mad and they're outraged and they're, but they and they'll fire off at you know these pseudo causes of justice. Harry, we talked a lot about back during COVID because that was when the, I call it the white girl book, white fragility, <laughs> when the white girl book came out and like everybody that was mad, did you remember that book? Mm-hmm. White fragility. Everybody that was mad were entitled upper middle class to upper class white people, predominantly females. And everybody that we dealt with that was mad because we weren't taking a stance on this cause or that cause or that movement or George Floyd or BLM or whatever at the time, LGBT equality, whatever, which that's another conversation. We, that's not our mission. That's not what we're not. That's not where we go publicly. We, we proclaim the gospel. We disciple people, but we do engage culture. And I remember Harry and I had a conversation where it's like this, the people that we're hearing from, are upper middle class white girls that grew up in these nice subdivisions, you know, parents made lots of money. They turned sixteen, they got their, you know, whatever really nice car, their Ford Bronco, their new Bronco, whatever, you know. Their Jeep. And then they now they feel guilty about it. Like social media is what's done that, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think when you talk about how it's damaged our ability to think critically. Uh, to me, I, and this is from running camp social media for however many years, what I've seen is uh, a lot of my thinking of this or thinking about this comes from Neil Postman's book, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I think a lot of us read it a while ago, but I think it's just spot on. He's talking about cable news networks in the eighties, but it applies so much even more to social media, but the medium of social media is by nature the like it, it constrains the message. So I think what's so damaging when we're trying, even if you're trying to do good on social media, even if you're trying to think critically or say things that do really matter, you're putting it, you're packaging it in a thing in a medium you know that doesn't convey serious messages it's glitz and glam and attention so practically you're scrolling through instagram and you see something that's pray for this person they're hurt they're in need we're raising money we're raising awareness and like yeah i get i'm behind that i can like it i can comment but the nature of the beast is then i i scroll and the next thing is a kitten stuck in a glass or something and the next thing is a guy on a surfboard eating it on a wave like there's Mm -hmm. just you know it's random so then even something we are passionate about even something we do really care about it in a lot of ways 
devalues it or demeans mm. it just by the nature of where it's placed. Mm. So I think that has a lot to do with the critical thinking is like it's teaching us that even valuable things are super transient. Like mm. as soon as you like it, comment, even if you, it's like I said a prayer about this, but the next thing I do is laugh at, you know, whatever this meme is or this, yeah. you know, scene from the office or whatever. So it just mm. even serious things because of the medium of social media are devalued. And I think that's by design for sure. You know, because I think social media is an expression of our culture's current worldview in the same way that if you remove social media, what was the dominant worldview creators in our culture? It would be college campuses, Mm -hmm. right? And so Mm -hmm. people are leaving those campuses with a worldview that was being shaped by those individuals. Well, now we view social media as if it's organic when it's not, when there's, there's companies that are shaping how you think based upon what they think. And so not to get too, not to, you know, make it over philosophical, but we're in a postmodern world with deconstruction deconstructions whole purpose is to make everything meaningless because in a postmodern world there's no such thing as absolutes or truth and so or meaning right and so a part of that worldview is ingrained in the algorithms of social media you know where they elevate things that they believe based upon their feelings or based upon what they think is right and they, you know, you know, de-elevate or de-platform things that they don't necessarily believe in and based on feelings. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that quote, the first quote that we looked at from, from this article, at the heart of digital authenticity is emotional expression. Right. Because that's a postmodern worldview. Mm-hmm. It's not truth. It's feelings. Mm-hmm. Emotional expression is a feeling. And when you don't believe, when a culture no longer believes that anything is true or anybody has a hold on what's true, emotional expression wins the day because Mm -hmm. emotional expression is the only, what do you say, the only truth or the only thing that is bringing meaning to an individual's life. It's the realest thing they can experience. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's why it changes all the time because feelings are futile. They're not concrete. And so they change rapidly. And so... You know, I, I, I think that's why so many people feel meaningless in this world because they're building their life on a feeling that mm-hmm. is constantly changing. And why, uh, when a person doesn't feel safe, that kind of trumps everything in the moment. Sure. So when you can say, uh, this politician, you know, you see it the most with Trump, but really you see it with anybody that takes a, a stand, say, for, judeo-christian ethic or comes from a biblical worldview i'm not saying trump is those things but i'm saying that's where we see where you see the most is the things that people say about donald trump i'm sure if there's another conservative figurehead in the political scene in the next four to eight years then it'll be that person but it seems to be uh that people don't feel safe but that's that's crazy well, I, you know, using him as an example, I think he has the capacity to make people feel something on a national scale. Mm. Most people don't have the ability to do that. Social media has the ability to do that, and they do that on purpose to shape, you know, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. But there's very few individuals, and I think that's why he's so polarizing because there's very few individuals that are left that can say something that it causes a reaction. You know, it makes people feel one way or the other. And I think that's why he's dangerous in this world because social media platforms control what our societies are supposed to feel. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And John just air quoted the word dangerous. In other words, there's sarcasm there with to, to, to this movement that seems to be driven by social media, a, a figure like that 
poses a threat. Sure. Cause he, I mean, cause the other thing in that quote, um, after, after that the emotional expression, he said that the author of this book focuses on internet shaming and outrage. His key insight isn't that the social internet makes us angry. We all know Facebook was algorithmically engineered to foment outrage. Instead, he shows that the social internet habituates behavior. It trains us to inhabit the world as wrathful people who emote first and think second, thereby reinforcing and providing a platform for self-expression. That's what, that, that's what, so if, if, if the Trump card, no, no pun intended, if the, like the thing that is most authoritative in my life is, is the emotion that I'm feeling or in the, in a cultural context is the emotion that others are feeling, then I just have to express that emotion like and social media has given me a platform where I can express that emotion and feel like I'm expressing it to everybody. And then everybody's got to capitulate to that. And people want to feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves because they're searching for meaning. So a perfect example is that movie Barbie came out and everybody, everybody was posting about Barbie and taking a picture at the theater and, you know, and their opinions and dressing up and all this kind of stuff. And it, and it kind of became viral in a moment, whether the movie was good or not, or you have an opinion, it was social media driven because people were like, I want to be a part of something that's bigger than myself. Mm. It brings meaning to my life. If I post a picture and I'm a part of this meaningful movement, make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was going to say that's so hard to, and it makes it's given us a standard that's impossible to live up to because we're one we're then taught we need to have these huge emotions and like mass satisfaction moment by moment day by day everything should be making me feel a certain way but then also there's so there's that like barrage coming towards us but then we have to realize the barrage is actually coming from a place that's totally fake because you know if we're using the barbie example yeah there were a bunch of pictures posted but how many more pictures were taken that weren't just the right picture or Mm. you know i had to wear the right outfit or whatever Mm. like social media is such a fake presentation of what life even is so we're given this pressure of everyone's everyone's happy everyone's looks so good everyone's doing the right things, eating the right food with the right people. And like, I'm supposed to be having these big emotions to counteract that or to complement that rather. And it's just totally unrealistic. It gives, you know, and that's where I think the conversation that you had with Robin Spence, you guys spent a lot of time there of the, that's leading to depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. and loneliness. You know, we're the most connected we've ever been and we're the loneliest we've ever been Mm -hmm. because everything we see we're trying to live up to and we can't cause it's not real. You know, I'm just going to give an example because I think this is a, you know, a, a good illustration for kind of capturing the feeling that we're experiencing. You know, you go, you, uh, you go to a movie, you, you go watch a scary movie, horror movie when you're maybe when you're younger, maybe now when you're walking your car by yourself and it's dark, you, you know something's in the backseat, <laughs> right? How real is that feeling to you in that moment? Mm. When you walk in your house and you just watch that movie and you walk home and all the lights are off, you know, how real is the feeling of fear that you have in that moment? Mm. How quickly do you have to turn off the light switch and then jump to your bed? Yeah, yeah right? Yeah. So I'm just using that as an example to say, you know, we might laugh about that. Oh, yeah, I remember. But in the moment... That feeling of fear that you have is as real as, you know, there might not be a monster in your back seat, but the feeling that you have, you you would be convinced 100% there's a monster there. Hmm. And I think that's social media is, is perpetuating this constant fear that's based on 
we would say maybe a lie, you know, not that, you know, nobody's ever been in the back seat before, but does that make sense? So mm-hmm. it's perpetuating, you know, a fear, an outrage, it's perpetuating a feeling. And in the same way that you would say, okay, well, how do you combat that feeling? You know, feelings are combated by what's true. Mm-hmm. There's really not a person in your back seat. Mm-hmm. You flip on the lights in the dark. There's nobody there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a metaphor, but what? how do we do that in real life? It's by grounding people in something that's true. Mm-hmm. And that's where the philosophical component or the biblical worldview, I think, I think, you know, what we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to train ourselves, train other adults, train teenagers to ground themselves in something that's true because that is the best strategy for them to combat, you know, a falsehood or a lie that social media is just exasperating. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, the the monster in the closet illustration makes good sense to me. I can remember as a little kid, my dad making me go out to the uh, woodshed to bring in firewood for the, for the wood heater. And that I can still picture where the shed was and how far I had to walk from the back door. And it was like, you know, walking out there was freaky. But once I got the wood in my arms and walking back, I felt like something was literally right behind me. I can still almost give myself chills up and down my <laughs> spine thinking about how I felt, you know, as a 10-year-old coming from because the woodshed set right up against the edge of the woods. Was there a specific boogeyman or character you were worried was right behind you or just a, a general think, scariness? I think a general yeah, I think just the unknown and the darkness. Yeah. And no doubt like back to John's illustration if I watched a movie, mm-hmm. you know, then there was. I remember watching the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and the first time I watched a Freddy Krueger movie, that was that was pretty freaky. But to me, I was always more afraid of a serial killer. You know what I mean? <laughs> like there's some evil person that's uh-huh. looking for a house to, you know, your your imagination as a kid. Oh, yeah. oh unsolved mysteries, bro! Yeah. You accidentally uh-huh. watch unsolved mysteries, and you're uh-huh. like locking every door. They're coming and, after me. Yeah. That's, I remember I gave the example of the light switch because that's what I remember. I lived in my basement or my my parents' basement for a couple of years in high school or middle school or something. So I was older even then, but I remember watching scary movies and like the light switch to the basement was so far away from my room that I would legit turn it off and like Run. sprint. <laughs> I was probably sixteen years old. Yeah. But that, but man, that's a good illustration because that fear. Not only is it real, it's mm-hmm. controlling That's right. everything about you in that moment. You yeah. know, you're not you're not sprinting from that light switch, going, "I wonder where I'm going to go to college, or what am I <laughs> going to have for breakfast tomorrow." You know, you're in this this emotional whirlwind. <laughs> Something's about to get me. And it's funny too, because I, I totally agree with what you said that it is a real fear. There, you can't deny that. But especially when we're talking about social media or in the horror movie example it's it's still manufactured you know like but especially in the social media context that fear of missing out or that anxiety or that desire to meet this expectation whatever it is it takes so many forms for different people that feeling is very real you know especially we deal with teenagers and college students all the time that's so obvious and apparent and prevalent in the way they act, the way they dress, the way they present themselves on social media and off. But all of that is manufactured. It's put before them as this like expectation that they think they have to live up to that I think in the real world, and I could be wrong about this, but no one's actually holding them to that level of expectation, but they're holding themselves to this totally unrealistic level of like I have to be this happy or I have to attain this or so it's it is funny that and that, I mean that's where feelings are so dangerous that's a lot of what we're talking about today but they're so real they really do capture your thoughts your actions but a lot of times in what we're talking about especially they're 
manufactured or manipulated to be what they are. And then they, we allow them to define our reality. And I think you made such a good point of saying, and because they, they intersect at that point of not being true, but truly affecting us, that's where we have to have, I mean, I think of when Jesus says, those who worship me worship in spirit and truth. Like we have to declare what's true if we're really going to live out a life of worship for the Lord. We can't live in a lie and try and portray something. We have to operate off of what's most true about us. And what's, I know I've heard you say this so many times from the um, stage, Brody, but like that, that Christ is the one that gives us our value. Mm -hmm. I remember years ago, you given a illustration about a pair of boots you had that were beat up and like weren't worth anything anymore. But do you, as the owner of the boots, you assign a large value to those because of the experiences you've had them. They've been with you so long. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, I, I probably heard that when I was a camper in mm -hmm. 04 or whatever, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, realizing to combat the feelings of the lack of value or the lack of satisfaction to combat that, we have to preach the truth to ourselves that we have infinite value because God made us. We have, we can be satisfied, but only in Christ. Like there's real avenues to meet those needs we're just trying to meet them through the manufactured avenues that can't provide anything except the empty feelings and not the satisfaction of them. Yeah, that makes sense. To stay in that horror film illustration, I, I think, Harry, I, you'll probably remember this too. I remember this is a long time ago you doing this illustration where I talked about we were going, I think it was my oldest child was like three so we're talking over 20 years ago and we and she was afraid she was scared in her room mm -hmm. you know and which this you know which that story is hilarious because um that's the story about she was scared of randall who was the villain in uh monsters inc and one night but terrible he, villain he's a yeah terrible villain good villain however you want to put that sure. really good at being a villain <laughs> Really good at being a terrible villain, but I took him outside because he was. You remember that movie? Mm -hmm. So he could. He was a chameleon, but he could turn invisible. Mm -hmm. So this went on four or five nights in a row. So finally, I went in there when I. Where, I said, "Where's Randall?" She said, "He's in my closet." I said, "All right, I'll be right back." And I, I took a, a page from Major Pain. You ever <laughs> saw that movie? No. But I didn't. I don't shoot my gun in the closet. I just go in and I act like I'm fighting Randall in the closet. It's a little bitty closet. And then I come running, running out of the closet, bounce off of her. Do I act like I'm fighting this invisible lizard man, you know? And I bounce my way down the hall and I go through the front door and I come right around outside of her door, outside of her bedroom. <laughs> and, I, and I take my pistol and I dump about 15 <laughs> rounds into the side of the mountain. Da, 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 da. And I'm like die randall <laughs> she can hear it all you know so i come back in the i come back in the house down the hall and i walk through her through her door i said randall's dead <laughs> she said yeah and we would role play from that movie and i would be sully and she'd be a little girl named boo and i still remember she's i'd built her a bed that to get into it she had to go up a climbing wall and to get out of it she had a slide that she slid down in the mornings and she's probably three years old She's up in that loft bed, or her head's all the way up the ceiling, and she's up in the bed, and she's grinning, and she's like, "Yay, Sully!" <laughs> you know. So, so here's this imaginary monster that is not real. She was never in danger. But then, uh, I remember this moment uh, during that time where we were walking through the airport uh, in in the Twin Cities, and it was so crowded. I don't remember why, but it was me and little and and my daughter and I remember walking through and she just wanted to run and do her thing. And I was like, you can't, you, you have to stay beside me. Like you have to stay with me. There's too many people here. You get lost. There's real danger here. And I remember trying to explain to her, there's real danger. It just didn't make sense to her. It's like, it's just a bunch of people. And I think what social media is doing at a much larger scale, it's desensitizing our young people to what, really is destructive and dangerous for sure 
for the way you think. And I don't just mean, yes, in terms of um, exploitation through things like pornography and trafficking. Sure. that's. But I mean the way it's ruining the, their ability to think critically or to receive criticism or to think constructively. And it's having a negative impact and effect on the way that they – I mean, we, we now have enough data. The data are, are out that say, you know, meaningful relationships, able to carry a meaningful conversation. They're losing all of that to an enemy that you can't even see in one sense, but then to try to instruct them and say, Hey, this is, this is a real danger. They just don't see it. But then they're afraid of things that they're scared of. You know, for an example, they're scared of all of us because we are white males. And so, you know, maybe they've, they've bought into the idea that, uh, evangelical Christians or white evangelical Christians are the enemy or someone from this political team is the enemy. That person's probably not the enemy. You probably have a lot more in common than you think, but they've been taught to fear something they shouldn't fear. And they have no fear of the very thing that could be ruining their lives because it's ruining their ability to interact in relationships, emotionally, conversationally, sexually, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. Again, I, I kind of see everything in this um, area through the lens of amusing ourselves to death. I think mm-hmm. in a lot of ways it shaped my thinking on media and um, being critical of media when we watch it, not just being a consumer, but like thinking uh, as we consume, which, uh, you know, is, is hard to do. Like that's what we're saying right now but uh neil postman just in the intro even the intro if you guys everybody should buy this book and just read the introduction to it uh we'll have it i think you can still get that book on amazon you can yeah yeah we'll have it we'll, we'll go ahead and get you a nice helpful link i've had a bunch of copies of it but i just keep giving them away because i think it's just such a good book um but in the intro he base his basic argument for the whole book is people are afraid of what George Orwell wrote in the book 1984 is going to happen. The totalitarian regime is going to come over and take over and tell us what we're allowed to think, what we're allowed to do, what we're allowed to be. And people are scared of that. But he said, nobody's scared of Algis Huxley's dystopian novel, uh, Brave New World, where no one is, no one has to be told what to do or taught how to think or what they're allowed to read or what they're not allowed to read because they're given so much pleasure and so much information that nobody wants to read a book. So he's saying what, what I fear is or what Neil Postman, what he fears was that it wouldn't be that people would ban books. It would people, it was people would have no desire to read books because they're just satisfied with whatever they're given these pleasures. And he wrote this in the eighties saying, this is what's going to happen. Mm. And, you know, putting it in today's context and talking about critical thinking, I'm just like, overwhelmed with how true that is that we're you know we see something in the news and we react to it and then we don't think about it ever again we react because it's right there in front of us and then we move on to the next thing that's right in front of us and we don't there's no lasting effect there's no real like taking something in and valuing it and so we're being taught you know we're seeing that in goofy things like cat videos or whatever but we're it's happening in real things like with political discourse is just disintegrated. But then more practical for us is relationships. We're taught that relationships are these little micro things that come and go and don't matter and they're flippant. And no one's telling us that, but that's the way we're experiencing relationships. And it's, I think that's why they're, that's what's destroying people's ability to communicate, like you're saying, to think um, is no one's telling us not to do those things, but we're being lulled into it and there's uh. I wouldn't even say lulled I'll give you an example do you think that social media would be different based upon the people in charge having a different worldview like what if you mean what if social media had been the the like the the brainchild and the Frankenstein of the conservative right like Let's say it was run by Christians. Mm. Let's say it was run by, and people were listening. The, you know, at the same atheists, level. 
Muslims. You you name a worldview because the reality is is people that run social media have a worldview. They set the algorithms. They are shaping the way we think. Mm-hmm. So it's intentional, right? In China, they've banned, like they have shifted the algorithm to where younger people, when they're scrolling, don't see stupid videos and accidents and and meaningless things. Mm-hmm. They see math formulas and it's educational. It's educational. Mm-hmm. Because the people that are in charge are shaping, he says, he uses a big word, epistemology. Mm-hmm. It's talking about shaping the way you think. That's knowledge. He says, we need to have a strong epistemology in our churches. What he's saying is, what we teach in our churches, because we believe in truth, we need to shape how our students, how our parents, how individuals think. Right, Because even going back to the whole conversation about critical thinking, if you break down critical thinking, you are critical because you have a foundation. Hmm. You're comparing it to you're comparing the truth with a lie. But our culture doesn't believe that anything's true anymore. The church should. That gives us a filter to critically think. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. And so in some respects, the people that are in charge of social media are implementing a worldview and a philosophy that is naturally creating nihilism, meaninglessness, deconstruction, because that's what they're pumping into. You know, it, it's intentional. And I think that that's been one of my biggest, you know, not soapboxes, but I'm, you know, we pretend as if social media and things go viral and it's organic and, and I'm sure there's some maybe may, and I, I, I don't even know, but it is very intentional. Algorithms are mathematical formulas that are put in there by a human being mm-hmm. that are intentionally shaping how individuals think. Yeah. Uh, that's scary. So deconstruction does not try to, disprove an idea deconstruction tries to make an idea meaningless and so in essence it you know instead of engaging in an argument with an idea it it's just going to attack the idea from a sense of meaning so it's going to throw all these other ideas or things or quotes or whatever you know the the reason I brought up the Ayn Rand book it's it's kind of like it, it came out in the fifties or sixties I think the fifties I watched a video where Mike Wallace was uh inter, was interviewing her and that was one of the early talk show guys you know Mike Wallace was still on TV in the nineties uh, he was one of the early like um, sit down in a chair what what Rogan does today Mike Wallace was doing on his TV show in the fifties when television sets were first put in homes. And he's interviewing her, and but she she wrote this novel. It was, it was a novel that basically promoted this postmodern idea of objectivism. We there's it's not incidental then that the the rise in deconstruction is parallel to the rise in social media social media prominence and influence for sure. And and you know for our listeners because I know we most the majority of our listeners live in a in a Christian world so you know, they're probably thinking of the deconstruction that's happening with like progressive Christianity, which is a part of it. But deconstruction is also a bigger worldview, you know, that piggybacks off of a postmodern worldview in which, okay, there's no, there's no absolute. So everything that you've been told in the past, anybody that's making a truth claim, they're only trying to control you. So we need to deconstruct everything. And, and, you know, the problem with the deconstructionists and you can look up the history of this is that most of them ended up, um, if you take deconstruction to its end, then everything in your life becomes meaningless. Mm-hmm. A lot of them committed suicide. That's right. And, and that is exactly where this current worldview in our culture is moving individuals. So they're on social media that is run by individuals that have this postmodern deconstructionist worldview where everything in their life is meaningless. They're looking to find meaning in the moment a feeling. And so they need that constant feeling, constant feeling that social media or, you know, uh, what do we call it? Outrage culture or whatever it is gives them 
but that's so temporary. It's like a drug. It's like a hit going on with the science behind it, you know, but it's just, it's literally leading them to nihilism. It's leading them to a meaningless life. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's by design. Mm-hmm. That's so scary to me, especially thinking in the world we're living and working in right now of youth culture trying to proclaim the truth of the gospel to teenagers. When I, there's not many people who are hearing taught, life is meaningless, you need to deconstruct the truth, you need to take everything you've ever learned and rip it to shreds and go back yes. to the base of your emotions. Nobody, Very few people are hearing that taught to them but they're learning it experientially through the, and Spencer had some awesome hard data that I don't remember of like the hours upon hours are spending on social media. They would never say out loud the things I hear at church. I need to deconstruct the truth of those things because of what I'm learning on social media. Nobody that's a 14 year old thinking that that's right. But they're every time they scroll through every hour they spend or every minute they spend is teaching them to value things less and less towards valuelessness or meaninglessness. And so they're, that's what makes it so hard to fight is that you can't say, well, you've heard this. You don't need to listen to that. They're like, I've never heard that. They're just scrolling away, but just practically, and I don't know if we want to go down this trail, but like, how do we at snowbird or the people who are listening at their churches, how do we combat a very visible enemy in social media, but that it's, it's so subversive. It's tactics aren't out front and in the open. Like when we proclaim the truth, how do we, how do we combat that? Yeah, that's the, that's exactly where I want, I want the conversation to right. go now. And, and I think that's Harry, where you bring such good thought and insight of this because it's the world you do live in. And we've seen, um, you know, the job y'all have done with our social media platform has been phenomenal. I have, so I'm not really on social media. I do have a Twitter account, and for several years I I posted on there a good bit, and I haven't really so much lately. But then I also have, I have a pseudonym Facebook account and a pseudonym Instagram account, neither of which has any followers because nobody knows who it is, and I follow four or five people i'm gonna find you i follow you uh or or swo yeah you know instagram i follow hokies football um follow tucker holloway i'll follow swo you know that's That's about it that's a good group Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so uh what uh i i think what would be good and helpful now is because this is basically the basically the third set the third episode we've done here, and I want to I want to really wind this down. Not this will be an ongoing conversation. We're going to do this again. Um, this is something people ask for, and we'll continue to, to to put out this kind of content. But one of the reasons I really wanted to have this conversation is because I value your opinion so much. One of the reasons being you, in one sense, abhor social media. Very true. And it seems anonym, un, like uh, when something's an anomaly, anomalous. Antithetical, maybe. Yeah. But, but like you, you hate social media and you don't really do it personally, but you vocational ministry is social media is the world you live in. You do it as ministry. Right. So I feel like that the reason I really think that gives you a unique voice is because in one sense, parents, I think, say would say, you know, you've got those who would say no social media allowed. And wh- that's where I am with my younger kids. I don't allow it, but there's a point where you got to let go of your kids. They got to So you, you better prepare them for when they do decide to engage in it. Cause at some point they're going to be out from under you and they're going to dive in. And because it's, it's here to stay and it's part of the fabric of our society now. So as you know, I feel like you've got a unique blend of like how you look at this. You don't really, do it personally, but you do it every day for Snowbird. And I think that's why you're so effective at it because you're not. I remember years ago talking to Bridget Jeffcoat when she was kind of handling this for you and you were, we were just really ramping up that, that side of how we 
do ministry, you know, get trying to get some content out. And she was like, man, some days I just got to quit and unplug from this. It just drains sure. me. Yeah, uh, I do dislike social media. I think, I mean, I agree with obviously everything we're saying right now about it's promoting meaninglessness and poor critical thinking skills and things like that. Um, but I think the, the reality that it's here to stay is important for us at least. I know for me, I'm quick to like dismiss it. Uh, but I think as the church, we have to realize if it's here to stay, then it's an area that we can engage with the gospel. And I would be, uh, maybe overly optimistic to say that we can redeem all of social media and, you know, use it in every way that like Christians are going to take it over. I don't think that's realistic, but like we have a platform of, you know, I think our Instagram following is like 16,000 people now. So we have a platform that students who are on social media for however many hours a day scrolling meaninglessly, if we can import uh, like gospel truth into that and make them pause and see truth or realize truth or think about truth for a moment, maybe we can redeem that time. And I don't have a like solid answer. Like this is exactly why we post the way we do. Um, but I think the opportunity that we have as believers to redeem social media is there. It's very difficult to do. Um, I know a guy who used to work here, Josh Haskell. We like him a lot. He's great. Uh, but he's, he's one of the only people I've ever met who is super faithful to proclaim the truth of the gospel on social media and use it as a platform to reach out to friends and like challenge them with the truths of scripture. But so, yeah, I think a lot of people will desire like, Oh, I'm on social media to be a Christian presence for my friends. Or I'm on social media because this or this, but they don't practically or pragmatically use it for that. So I think we, and really this is this goes into every aspect of our lives, but it's just so highlighted on social media, is we have to live with purpose. You know, you're a mantra of Snowbird that I don't even remember the first time you said it was, or is, nobody drifts towards holiness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think of... Um, I took a discipleship class recently where the teacher basically took the same approach of when people say, well, everybody worships something. So what are you going to worship? He took the approach of everybody's being discipled in something. So like, what are you allowing yourself to be discipled by? What are you growing more in the likeness of? And I think if we have a Christian worldview and are actively moving forward, trying to glorify the Lord on social media, that's doable. Mm-hmm. That is accomplishable. And I mean, we have seen people come to conferences and experience growth. And we've seen, you know, people come to our marriage conferences because of social media posts and then it's like their marriages be changed. So mm-hmm. I can say that we've seen redemption in social media, but it, I, I'm not so uh, blind or optimistic to say that it's like, easy or mm-hmm. that everyone should even be doing it. You know, I would, I would lean more towards where you're at with your kids of counseling people to be more careful or slow to enter social media rather than saying as Christians, we should all be on social media all the time. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. It does. Yeah, it does. I, you know, to, to kind of piggyback off of that, I think, the, the article that you had us read a little bit, he uses a quote, and you hear this a lot. You hear um, the new social media in our world called the digital Babylon. And last year, I remember you gave a great talk about Babylon and Daniel. And, you know, when you, when you, when you think about that illustration, you know, and now we're living in Babylon, Babylon, how did Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego live? They were different than the culture. Hmm. And I think our culture is shifting social media and in general. And so I think the answer to social media is the same answer to how we're going to live in culture. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, we talked about it last year at the um, youth pastor conference, you know, the Barna study that came out talking about resilient disciples and how, you know, because there's all these studies that say when students leave high school ministry, that they, they walk away from the faith. And there's been 
a lot of follow-up studies that are saying that's just not true. Mm. When you, when you nail down into some of the studies, you recognize that the ones that are walking away, you know, we're really not walking with Jesus. Right. And so this idea of a resilient disciple really is, is when you look at the qualifications of what that looked like, it was simply somebody that believed in Jesus you know, walked with the Lord, believed in the authority of scripture. And those individuals have the capacity to resist um, the new digital Babylon because they're grounded in truth. And so I think that is a part of, you know, the big picture is, hey, we need to train our young people to be resilient disciples of Christ. We need to be examples for them of resilient disciples of Christ you know, on social media and in real life. And I think going back to our discussion that we had a you know a couple episodes ago, I think if you look at the illustration of um the horror movie and the fear that we talked about, well, my two and a half year old daughter would not have the capacity to understand. She would just be afraid of the monster. Mm-hmm. My middle schooler would have a little bit more, but fear would still be overwhelming. An early college student would be able to recognize that a little bit more. So I think, you know, us leading our children looks, you know, giving them certain parameters based upon their maturity level and their spiritual maturity, right? So we're talking about a philosophy for social media, but I think it's also bringing into context where they are in their life. How much can they handle? Right. Because um, as an adult, obviously we live in this world, you know, so um, like Harry says, there's some people that are going to say, hey, my philosophy is I don't even engage in social media at all. That's great. That's what they've decided. There's other people like, hey, this is this is the world we live in. So I'm, I'm trying to utilize it. But there's a level of maturity that they're making that decision for young people. They might not be at that level of maturity. And so we as adults, authority figures parents were were making those decisions for them if that makes sense yeah it does and that's what i think the first episode that's really what we're kind of coming back to where we started this conversation which is parents right now need to be freaked out a little bit yeah they you need to be freaked out you need to be a little a little scared and it needs to be the kind of fear that puts you into fight mode Fight or flight, I don't care. It doesn't matter if you're a fight person who naturally you're, you're wired for fighting and or, or you're a person who's naturally wired for flight, which, by the way, I've learned um, if you're flight, that doesn't mean you're a coward. It just means you're like, nope, let's go. We're getting out of here. Something bad is going to happen, and we're going to get to safe, higher ground or whatever. Uh, where Because a person who's wired to fight could end up drowning in the flood because they don't run away because they try to fight the flood where the person with a flea mentality submitted to Christ runs to higher ground. Likewise, there's a time where you need to stand and fight and not run away. And so you got to figure out as a parent, I think how you're wired, but then you got to recognize your kids don't even know the floods here. Yeah. And so you got to fight or flee with them, fight for them, flee with them, whatever it is, but you've got to create a safe place for them and don't be scared. It parenting requires courage you need to be a little bit freaked out and scared of what's happening right now because they're, they are, they have already, there are movements within the deconstructionist movement because that's the LGBTQ plus movement is a deconstructionist movement. But BLM was a deconstructionist movement. When you go back and you read the early core values, it was deconstruct the, the patriarchal structure of the home, the, the nuclear family. It's an attack and a deconstruction of everything that we hold to be true rooted in scripture. And so we've got to, we've got to fight for this because our children, we, I don't think we know the kind of condition they're going to be in 10 years from now. We know that there's a 4,000% increase in, in teenagers trans transitioning 4,000% increase in five years. That's hard numbers. We know the suicide rate is is increasing at such a pace that we can't keep up. We don't even know. We don't have hard numbers because it's like staggering because of the deconstruction, the deconstructionist movement that social media is pushing. So we got to fight for our kids, and we got to fight. And and so the way you jump, Harry, one of the things I appreciate when you jump into the space 
and and it was really encouraging for me to hear you explain that where a kid's scrolling or a mom scrolling scroll 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 a cat fail video uh of you know a funny drunk person at a party doing something stupid a husband playing a prank on his wife something really serious about the climate change is like do 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 and then all of a sudden boom there's a five slide post from snowbird that are the five main points of a talk that we gave at the iron on iron conference those are so good and i find myself always scrolling through those slides because they're so easy to follow and it's literally like a practical nugget and i think that's where your team and the the team at snowbird is nailing it i feel like i feel like for our listener you need to follow snowbird this is not a like and subscribe speech you know yeah. i don't care if that sixteen thousand grows or not you need to go if you're going to be in that space go get like intentional with what you're allowing into your mind but back to as parents we yeah. gotta we gotta fight for this man it's this is this is our philosophical and spiritual battle for our generation of parent of parenting and i think it's critical i think something too and i think I don't think I need to add anything into what you guys said in the first podcast y'all did or what Spence and Rob said with parenting teenagers. But as you were talking, a conversation I had with my brother a few years ago popped into my head where he, uh, he recently got one of those, I think it's called a light phone. It's like basically a flip phone, but not a flip phone. It's just, it's not a smartphone. Um, but he, I asked him why he got it. And cause his kids are really young. His, he's got, um, I think my oldest nephew's f- four and then the other one will be two in November. I think that's right. Cole, if you're listening, I'm sorry if I got that wrong. Um, but I was like, well, I mean, your kids aren't that old. What's, what's the big deal? And he said, yeah, he said, yeah, but I don't want my, and this was years ago. So I think his oldest was two and he's like, I don't want him to just see me on my phone all the time because kids are, I mean, you said this in one of the other earlier podcasts of like all your kids are smarter on your phone than you are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so true. So if my kids are seeing me scroll around on social media mindlessly all the time, even though they're not going to do that for a decade, they're learning this is normal. Mm-hmm. And I like that, that scared me a little bit when we had this conversation. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I don't want my kids to think, oh, well, that's just what dad does. Or like, oh, yeah, like dad's not hanging out with us, but he's on his phone, so mm-hmm. it must be important. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's just not, it's not. you know? And uh, so I think maybe practically for even people with younger students or, or younger children, rather, who aren't worried about them being on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever, even just being personally aware of what you're doing and what your kids are seeing uh, I know that was that was a big wake up call just in my mind for the time that I'm spending on my phone in front of my kids, in front of my wife, mm-hmm. when I have them in front of me. You know, wouldn't mm-hmm. I rather spend time with them? Yeah, uh, it's just such a good. That's good because it's it really is affecting. Sadly, smartphones are affecting every area of our life. Yep. You know. Yeah. Today, this morning, I went and got coffee with Laylee. She's my daughter, who's a senior, and she's like. Her first class is at 11.30. She's only got two classes, and she'll be done in December. So uh, about 8.30, I texted her and said, what are you doing? She's like, I'm reading. I said, you want to get coffee? And so I met her at the coffee shop in town, and it was – I realized that I was carrying my phone in. I went, Wait a minute. I'm going to go spend 20 minutes. That's it. I got 20 minutes. Well, I don't want my phone – to be on the table Mm -hmm. and she's an adult she got a phone you know she's a maybe the only 17 year old i know who by choice doesn't have a single social media like outlet or account but and so neither one of us is going to look at instagram or twitter or facebook or but why even have it yeah let's just let's create some moments to just be in just be in those moments with your child your children, your friends, your coworkers. Let your, I mean, even like a, a single young gal, do it with, you know, do this, take this approach with your coworkers, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we gotta, 
man, we got to shake this and we got to, we got to see it as a battle that we're in. And even if it is, I mean, for, I don't know how many people are in the space that I'm in doing social media as part of your vocation, as part of your job, or even to promote something, whatever. I, and I've, I fail at this. My wife would tell you that I fail at this sometimes, but I try hard to, after I get home at 4.30 or 5 or whatever every day, I try not to get on Snowbird social media. So it probably isn't the best way to do social media if you're trying to engage people, but I'll, the next morning when I show up to work, that's when I'll repost stories or whatever, tag people, comment, blah, 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 blah. But I try as much as I can not to do that or to leave my phone somewhere else just because it's so, I'm realizing personally more and more how valuable that time is. Mm -hmm. And even though, would it be better for Snowbird's followers and the numbers and the algorithms if I was constantly on there? Yes, because that's how the algorithms work. They Mm -hmm. want you to be on there all the time. But I'm like, I'm not going to sacrifice what I could gain with my family or even in relationships with other people for what might benefit Snowbird Mm -hmm. that little bit. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying this in front of my boss, so there you go. (laughs) Worth it. (laughs) I uh, uh, 100% support that. Yes. <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> you can do it, people. Fight the good fight. And for students that listen to this, we got a bunch of them. Students, college students, summer staff, potential summer staff. Just just chill out. Take a break. You can do it. You can get through a day without it. My commitment. All right, this is in transparency, so now I'm really accountable for this for this school year is not to be on my phone once I get home in the evenings, not to be surfing or, you know, maybe after everybody goes to bed, you know, which we've, we've got a structure where we still have four kids at home. Um, but three of them are kind of still, you set a bedtime, you set a get up time, you know? Um, so maybe after that, if there's an email that needs to go out or I don't know what, you know, I'm not going to be religious about it, but I'm going to leave the phone outside in the evening. I think it's really wise leaving the truck. And I don't know, encourage folks to maybe try to do the same. We'll see how it goes. Yep. I know it's not going to be bad. I know it's going to be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to read. I'm already reading more. Reading. I'm reading actual books. No way. Before bed <laughs> instead of a screen. You know, instead of my Kindle app. I'm like, yep. oh, I've got a book and a headlamp. Here we go. Yep. I, and last thing I'll say is I think what Harry said earlier just stuck out to my mind you're either being discipled you're you you're being discipled by your phone or you're choosing to be discipled by the lord hmm. Hmm. and so sure. wherever you are as far as creating a a way a practice with your phone like is your phone discipling you right now or are you being discipled by mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm it, you know, are you taking control of your discipleship and your relationship with God? Because if not, your phone's discipling you right now. Yeah. And we, I think practically too, we'd love to hear from you guys who are listening of like, what are, what are ways you're having success with this or what are ways that you, that we could help? Like what are, what are avenues you're struggling with that you have questions about? And I know a lot of people, Brody, you say text you or, or call you and encourage you, but uh, anyone who wants to reach out to us can email us at, it's just media, the word media, at swoutfitters.com, or, you know, this is kind of ironic, but you could reach out on social media. Mm-hmm. We, could, we would answer you mm-hmm. in between the 8 and 4.30 hour. <laughs> <laughs> but Yeah, that's good. Um, that's it. We'll leave it right there. I feel like that's a good place to stop, that last... Um, that 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 last piece as far as like you give it give us some feedback i think that would be helpful um let us know what you think about this type of content you know and in our intro our tagline is that we really want to talk about things from a biblical worldview that as they pertain to culture we're also going to do you know we do biblical and theological discussion sometimes we're just unpacking a, a passage of scripture but there's no doubt we know for sure that when we talk about anything related to marriage and family, specifically parenting and, and, and family, and anything related to um, cultural issues that are linked up to social media, I guess it, it just people are really hungry for that kind of content. So 
uh, the feedback's always helpful. Um, next week we're going to pivot and get in. Next couple of weeks we're going to really focus more on some biblical narratives and get more into the theological and, and, and biblical side of some things. We're going to look at the story of Jonah. We're going to go beyond the flannel graph over the next couple episodes. Excited to do that um, and hoping that we're going to see some of you at a fall conference at Snowbird Winter Conference. We've got uh, just around the corner is our Be Strong Men's Conference just coming up in a couple of weeks. So um, hope to see you there. There's not much space. Even if we're maxed out and full, we can get you into the main sessions if you uh, don't need a place to stay. If you're going to stay, you know, get, make your own arrangements, a local Airbnb, or, or if you're local to the area, we'd love to have you come out and, uh, and be in our sessions. We're going to be taking a look at um, some, some important passages from the life of Joshua, what it is to be men of courage in the way we lead our families and impact the culture around us. So hope to see you there. Marriage conferences in October. We got student fall retreats coming up. Lots going on at SWO this fall. Last thing, we a lot of people don't realize this, but the number of people that come through here in the summer, we we equal that. Pretty much it's this is not exact, but it's about 50-50. The number of students and leaders that come through in the summer, we see that many more people come through from August to May. And there's a lot of opportunities for you to come to SWO, so we'd love to have you if you've never been. Doesn't matter where you come from, we have folks flying. We got people flying in from Denver at our Be Strong conference. So Denver, Colorado, all the way to these little teeny mountains, um, com- comparatively. Um, but um, anyway, hope to see you soon. Thank y'all. Have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to No Sanity Required. Please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps. Visit us at swoutfitters.com to see all of our programming and resources. And we'll see you next week on No Sanity Required.